This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pretty by Post, a gorgeous subscription service of indie greeting cards or stationery. Visit prettybypost.com slash bookdoctor, that's book D-R, to learn how you can get free shipping off the lifetime of your subscription, which is a really amazing deal. Welcome to episode 34. My guest today is Scott Carney, and I'm really excited to have Scott on. He is an investigative journalist and anthropologist, and two reasons why I'm excited, actually three. He has written several books, so we're able to see an experience of him writing over time. He's also writing about science and has been an investigative journalist and looks at research both for the length of article-length works as well as full book length and how you can transition from one to the other. So building an idea over time is a huge part of um, looking at writing as a professional writer. So that's a huge asset. And he also talks about ways to sustain yourself as a writer, which he definitely has. He has worked in some of the most dangerous and unlikely corners of the world, and he really works well to blend narrative, nonfiction, and ethnography. He's a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism and a 2016 to 17 Scripps Fellow at the Center for Environmental Journalism in Boulder, Colorado. His current book that just came out is called What Doesn't Kill Us, And his previous books are The Red Market and A Death on Diamond Mountain. And we talk about all three of them a bit in the episode. He was a contributing editor at Wired for five years, and his writing has also appeared in Mother Jones, Men's Journal, Playboy, Foreign Policy, Discover, Outside, and Fast Company. He's been on a variety of radio and television programs, including NPR and National Geographic TV. And in 2010, he won the Payne Award for Ethics and Journalism for his story Meet the Parents, which tracked an international kidnapping to adoption ring. He spent a lot of time in South Asia, and he speaks Hindi. We do not explore his Hindi on the show, but we explore most of the rest of his writing career, and it was a real delight to speak to Scott. Um, I think you're going to get a huge amount of information about building your career as a writer, how to take an idea and expand it from an article-length idea to a book-length idea, and also the challenges and enjoyment of actually experiencing something, writing from personal experience. And coming into something as a skeptic, which he did, writing What Doesn't Kill Us, and then learning a lot in the process and coming out, you know, wanting to share the ideas you've learned. So I'll let Scott speak for himself, but I think you're going to have a lot of fun listening to this episode. So, hey, Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my God. It's so great to see you again after like mm, 17 years. Oh, my God. Don't tell people that. It's been three years. It's been three years. (laughs) We've done a lot. Um, yeah, for those of you who don't know, we went to college together and, um, I'm so delighted to have Scott on because he's got this amazing book coming out that is blowing up. Tell me about how it's blowing up. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Like, uh, it's called what doesn't kill us. Um, and it's about how to use the environment to train your body. And it's been out two days and it's, it's gone pretty well. It's it's uh, it, it has a lot of attention and a lot of people are reading it and commenting and uh, and buying it. And that's just awesome. It's really cool. And it surpassed Ta-Nehisi Coates's book, right? On one of the bestseller lists. Did I see you it, say that? Yeah, it was briefly at 200 on Amazon, which is like for like two days on the on, you know, after release. That's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. It's not there right now, but it was on the front page of Reddit. And I think that's where. 
a lot of uh, you know current attention yet because we haven't really done much media. Uh, we're going to be on a, a bunch starting Sunday. But yeah, we've had no media yet. So this is it's just uh, amazing. And it could go up from here or it can completely tank and no one could ever hear about me again come Friday. But right now, it feels really good. No, I think I don't think that's going to happen because I think the the excitement about this book to me is two things. One is like I love the topic of kind of pushing physical ability and and health and all of those things in unusual ways. Like I loved um, Born to Run. It has a little bit of the Born to Run quality to me because, Mm -hmm. but you started from a different perspective, which I'll jump back to in a second. But I love the kind of, I don't know if this is even possible. There's this secret society, what's going to happen, but versus the Born to Run where he was going into like, I want to join these people and learn how to run in sandals. You were like, I think this is a bunch of bullshit. So, (laughs) and you have a history of debunking bullshit. So yes, tell me about that. I mean, you talk about it in the book, but I think it's interesting for people to hear when you're going in to disprove something versus going in to support it. Right. Oh, I mean, my background is, uh, I mean, I'm an investigative journalist, I'm an anthropologist, and I'm a, you know, a pretty skeptical guy in general. And I've been mostly skeptical about uh, things around meditation. And, and it all stems from a, a, a event that happened uh, more than 10 years ago now, where I was leading on a broad program in North India. And I had 12 students. We went on a silent meditation retreat uh, in the Tibetan tradition in Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha attained enlightenment uh, about 2,800 years ago. And on this retreat, it was, you know, it was it was silent and we were all sitting and contemplating enlightenment and our own mortality and all these things. And on the last day of the retreat, one of my students, uh, I call her Emily, that's a pseudonym. um, She climbed up to the roof of the retreat center and uh, jumped off to her death, uh, committing suicide. And uh, it was, you know, it's the most horrible experience you can possibly imagine. Right. I mean, she's. you never expect this as a teacher. And I read her journal and in it, it said, I am a bodhisattva. Those were like the last words. And, and for those not familiar with Buddhism, that basically means I'm enlightened. I, I am complete with my process. And now all I have to do is leave my body. And and that's what she did. And that's a misreading of Buddhism. But nonetheless, I was stuck with her body for about three days, you know, almost sitting next to her corpse for three days. And uh, and that led me on the process of writing my first book and my first set of inquiries, which was looking at what the body does uh, and what happens when you think about the body as an object versus, you know, what we are as people. And, and I ended up looking at organ trafficking from that. And I spent you know six years investigating organ trafficking networks, uncovering the criminal ways that people buy and sell body parts, which most people think is urban legend, but it's not. It's it really happens. And and then the second book, I was still musing about this one event. Right. And I wanted to know why someone who's attaining a beautiful thing, trying to trying to get enlightened. Right. How that translates into a uh, uh, this this horrific event. And I wrote a book called A Death on Diamond Mountain, where I looked at lots of people who went insane on meditation retreats. I uh, saw the story of one guy who died in the deserts of Arizona in a very questionable Tibetan uh, Buddhist organization. And and so when I got to my third project, I just sort of started uh, writing the book. 
that was going to become a death on Diamond Mountain. When I heard about this guy named Wim Hof, a Dutch fitness guru uh, who had his training camp in Poland, and he made these really superhuman sounding claims. Uh, he said it sounded like he could. Uh, he, he was saying he could control his body temperature at will. He could control his immune system. He'd done these things like climb most of the way up uh, Mount Everest in just a pair of shorts. He had had the records for like being in ice water. And I thought he was sort of a genetic freak. But his claims, I worried, would lead other people to doing dangerous things and possibly dying. And I was like, I'm going to go out. I'm gonna, and since I'm a, a debunker by career path, I'm going to debunk you. And so I flew up to Poland to meet him. And but I'm also, you know, a journalist, right? And, and an anthropologist. And I really believe in giving sources a fair shot. Like you don't just go in there and say you're wrong and flame them like you're an Internet troll. Right. You actually have to do the research. And so I did his method. I, I, I trained with him. Which sounds incredibly intense based on having I'm, I'm in the book right now. But just mm -hmm. like standing in ice and the, the saunas and the whole thing. It, it's not casual, this process. No, it's it's intense, right? Uh, it involves, you know, the first thing we did was uh, stand out in the snow with our bare feet and shorts, you know, where we are, you know, basically in our, in our underwear and we're standing in the snow and it's Poland. So this is the winter that that stops Napoleon's and the Nazi army, right? We're talking cold here and I'm standing out there in the snow and the first time I do it, I last five minutes before I'm like, hell no, this is terrible. Uh, I, mean, I was living in L.A. at the time, you know, palm trees swaying, all that stuff. And that was fine. I, I, it hurt. And I left. Uh, I didn't leave. I went to the sauna and warmed up. And Wim was like, no, that's fine. This is what normally happens. It's going to hurt the first time. But tomorrow it'll be better. And so we do these other training things. There's a breathing method and there's some other stuff that, that you do. But the next day I could stand in the snow for 10 minutes before that same feeling of pain sets in. And the third day, it was like 30 minutes. And by the end of the week, I was standing there for an hour at a time before I had this like sort of, I have to get out feeling. And that's a, a very fast improvement. And what we're basically learning to do is just, you know, adapt our body to these extreme environments. And because our bodies generally don't, Right. Because most of us generally live at like 72 degrees uh, because of climate control, we, we have we have this very narrow band of, of temperature variation that we're used to. And anything outside of that feels like pain. But our species has been around for 200,000 years. And, you know, before that, there's, you know, billions of years of evolution. And we had never controlled the environment before. And and those fluctuations are natural things that we have. And, and we've just been factoring them out with the way we are now. And so the, the process that I was going through was just simply doing what my body is designed for um, by giving it some extreme but short term variation. So at what point, you know, you go all the way through the science, which I'd love to talk about researching all of that for the science. But at the same time, you know, you go in, you're hell bent to, to disprove this, you beat him at chess, you know, and <laughs> damn right I did, <laughs> which he did not enjoy apparently <laughs> enough to put it in the introduction to the book. Um, and then at a certain point, something shifts. So where is the moment where you start change from like, this is a bunch of hooey and I've got to protect people from it to wait a minute. Was it the physical transformation or what was happening at the moment when you kind of tipped over? Yeah, I think that the, if I had to like point to just one moment and there was a lot of things that opened my eyes on this in this journey. But the thing that, that first did it 
is this breathing and push-up routine that he teaches, right? And I knew that I, you know, I was, I'm not in bad shape, but I'm not in great shape either, right? Uh, I could do about 20 push-ups and that was about where I was. And then I'd be sort of, I couldn't do more. But if I did the Wim breathing, the first time you did it, it's basically like hyperventilation. Uh, and then with a breath retention where you blow out, we have empty lungs. So it's like at the end of an exhale. And then, so you do that, you hyperventilate and you, you hold your breath and you hyperventilate and you hold your breath. And I was able to hold my breath, I think at that point for about two minutes without, you know, and normally I could hold my breath for maybe 45 seconds or something like that. And, and so that was big. And then I, I did these pushups and, and I had blown all the air out of my lungs. I'm doing pushups and I did 40. So I went from 20 pushups to 40 pushups in like a day. And that's really, really interesting um, to see that. that and, and that sort of made me reevaluate what this guy was about because he clearly had something. I was still skeptical of, of a lot of his claims. And honestly, I'm still skeptical of many of his claims because I really believe that evidence is important. But I've had my eyes opened enough that there's really something here. Interesting. Yeah, the push-up part is really interesting. It reminded me, this is totally bizarre. Of Do you remember that scene from Stripes? Did you ever see Stripes, that Bill Murray movie in like the 80s? And he's <laughs> he's in his 30s. It's like similar to the scene you described. You're like sitting there at the computer, like this is as good as it's going to get. And he tries to do push-ups. I think he does like 10. So you were definitely uh -huh. ahead of Bill Murray. And then they decide to go and join basic training because they want mm -hmm. to, to change it. And then, of course, they get in this great shape. So I was like, this is like a basic training in Poland mm -hmm. with a totally different perspective. So you went through this whole process and this was a week the first time you were with him. Right. It's a week in that, you know, we did other things too, right? We would go from the snow to the sauna, the snow to the sauna. And we would, uh, at one point I was, you know, there's this icy river by his house with snow all around it. And I was, I, I sat in there for not very long. I actually ended up crying after I was in it, but, but, you know, nonetheless, you feel this like huge energy burst. If you do it, I also meditated on, uh, these like snowy rocks until the snow melted around me. That was really cool. And we ended the, the week with me and him and, uh, you know, a couple other people climbing up this, uh, ski slope, a mountain called Mount Snezka. And I was doing it in just shorts and boots. And I think I had a hat on and, uh, made it to the top of that in eight hours you know, eight hours going up a ski slope, which is pretty arduous and pretty cold. And I think the temperature was around two degrees Fahrenheit. And I was sweating the whole way up the mountain. And that was just really cool, right? That was, I was finding that I had these powers that I, not, I'd say powers is the wrong word. I had these abilities that I never knew that I had. And then I, uh, I sort of, that, that article uh, eventually ran in Playboy magazine. It got a lot of interest and, you know, sort of appeared everywhere. And then I went back to writing my, my book about uh, these meditators who died. And I spent a couple of years doing that. And then I came back to Wim a couple of years later because uh, I knew I wanted to write a book, but I had sort of obligations for it. So I came back to him and boom, he is blown up to this major famous mega superstar all over the world. Everyone knows him now, uh, especially in these training uh, regimens. And, uh, you know, there's this big Vice documentary and he's everywhere now. And uh, it was a great time to write a book and sort of get deeper into the science behind it, get deeper into other people using his training. And uh, yeah, it's been a, a really wild and, uh, and fortunate journey. That's amazing. So what happened to you during those two years? Were you still doing the practices? Were you still or did you just kind of forget about it and focus on the other project? Uh, I was irregular with it, but I definitely would do it. And you know, there's this morning 15 minute breathing routine and cold shower that you you that I do. Uh, that's part of it. And 
you know, sometimes I'll do it every day for like months at a time. But then if I miss a day, you know, because I don't want to do it for whatever reason, then it could be like a month before I get back on track. But I, I'll always go back and circle back into it because it really does make my day feel better when I do this routine. And and there are clear benefits. But, you know, I'm, you know I open up the book with this sort of uh, image that, you know, my spirit animal is a jellyfish. You know, at, at heart, I'm a lazy person. And I think a lot of us are lazy people at heart. Uh, but, you know, when I meet these like incredible athletes who are also you know, doing this method and have much more, you know, work ethic. I mean, they just get these phenomenal, very quick results uh, doing it. So what's happened with the science? Because you write a lot about the science very articulately, and it was easy to digest. So mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to feel like, oh, my God, there's a bunch of science in this book. I can't handle it. It's actually riveting, <laughs> I thought. So how was that for you writing about the science and doing all that research? I mean, you know, I, I've been a science writer for a long time. I used to write for Wired and, you know, I'm not I'm not intimidated by by reading and uh, science. I mean, there's certainly a translation thing that has to go from from scientific speak where you're reading these numbers and those weird Greek numerals. And you're like, I don't know what the hell that means. And then and then trying to translate that over into you know English for people. That's a, that's a, a journey for sure. But, you know, there's this one experiment that I think is you know, probably the most interesting of the uh, science that I that I look at where is where Wim Hof made this claim that he could control his uh, immune system consciously, which is, you know, until that point, every single medical textbook said this is actually impossible because the immune system is separate from the conscious mind. And, you know, it, it, you know, you can't really control your digestion speed. Right. Or, you know, or your pupil dilation. Uh, and he, he basically was saying he could do that. So there was a scientist in uh, uh, it's in Radboud University, and I forget the name of the town. Nijmegen uh, is the name of the town, and and his name is Peter Pickers, and he had this assistant named Matthias Cox, and they were in the field of immunology, and they they designed tests for immunosuppressive drugs. So if you have a kidney transplant, let's go back to the red market for a second. If you have a kidney transplant, you need drugs that will suppress your immune system so your body doesn't eat the kidney and destroy it and think of it as a foreign invader. So they've designed this test to say whether those drugs are effective, right? If, if, if you take this drug and they, they prove that, that your immune system does not react to it, that means this drug can go out on, onto, the, onto the market. So what the test is, they inject you with heat-killed E. coli bacteria. So it's not the actual pathogen, it, but your body thinks it's the pathogen, and 99% of people get a fever response uh, and you know, feel sick like they have a cold or the flu. And Wim said that they could inject him with this drug and he wouldn't have a response, which seems really unlikely. So they injected Wim with the drug and he all he said, all he complained about was a minor headache and his cellular, the, the cellular biology that they did to him, you know, they took all sorts of samples, showed that he had great cortisol levels that he was just, you know, his readings were like, yeah, his system's actually fine. Not only that, his blood, after they removed it from his body, remained resistant to endotoxin for a week after it was out of his body. Now that's nuts. Uh, so this this article comes out and, and and the scientific community is like, wow, that's really interesting. Perhaps he's a genetic freak because it's 99 percent of people could have this response. But there's that one percent that wouldn't. So maybe this is just a, a weird study. And so when I went to Poland and I did this training, there was a follow up study scheduled for the next week where they, they would take people through the same exact training that I did. Uh, and then those people would also be injected with endotoxin. And. 
they ran the study. The, the article came out a year later, and all of them were able to repeat the same basic results that WIM had. I mean, they weren't all quite as impressive because they had only done the training for a week, but they all had been able to consciously suppress their response to this this endotoxin, which has just enormous implications for anyone with an autoimmune disease, right? If you have a disease where the, your body is attacking itself, think rheumatoid arthritis, think lupus, think Crohn's disease, think, think celiac, think, think all of these things where, where, where your body is eating itself. If you can consciously suppress your system, then you can possibly and, and likely um, combat it without the use of drugs. And that's what I found uh, in case studies where I meet people. I went to to uh, Holland, and I met people suffering from Crohn's disease, people suffering from arthritis, people suffering from a lot of different uh, autoimmune illnesses, and they had all, um, you know, shown me that they were able to actually reverse this process, uh, which was amazing. I probably met a dozen people. Now, of course, those are case studies. Those aren't like thousand people replicated results, but it's really, really promising, really, really interesting. So it's still early days, but it sounds like those two years where you were working on the other book were critical in terms of having studies available. So you didn't have to go out and say, well, I don't know, we'll see what happens. It worked for me. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. seems like that made a huge difference in terms of what you were able to report. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, the, the interest from both the scientific community and also various practitioners just grew. So I had more evidence to draw on. So... To talk about your process a little bit, since you've mm -hmm. written the three books now, mm -hmm. how is it, I mean, you spent six years tracking organ trafficking. Like, as a mm -hmm. writer, how are you doing that on a practical level? Like, I'm sure I could come up with a project I would love to do for six years, but I'd be eating, like, ramen and dying in the <laughs> process. So how does one get into a project like this that takes several years or, mm -hmm. like any of these, that goes on for a long time and, and maintain the ability to do it? Well... You know, so I got my start in magazines, right? So it's, I, I don't start with necessarily the intention of definitely getting a book deal and, and writing that way. So I was a contributing editor at Wired for a while. And the organ trafficking book sort of emerged from like, these were the stories that I was covering. I covered a, 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 a organ trafficking camp or a, a scandal where I think 80 women sold their kidneys in India. I was living in India at the time. And so I covered that story. And then I found this market where people were buying and selling human bones. And then one where uh, women were, where uh, surrogates were being exploited in India. And that once I'd done like, I had this beat, once I, I, I looked at and I had like five or six pretty big major feature stories, I was like those could also be chapters. And then so I just, there's a little bit of modification to go from there. And then and, you know, when you're writing for those particular types of magazines, you can find agents not so hard. So it sort of was a natural transition. Uh, but I'm also really interested in sort of the business of journalism. I have this website called wordrates.com. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's it's discussing how business practices of journalism, how how. You know, what's the, the magic that, that allows writers to survive, you know? And well, I think that will be a huge resource to anyone listening. <laughs> uh, so I also have this guidebook called The Quick and Dirty Guide to Freelance Writing. Uh, and, you know, if you sign up for my mailing list, it's free. Or you can pay me a couple bucks. And on Amazon, you can get it for, I think it's nine bucks or something like that. Uh, but the, the, the basic idea is if you're trying to be a journalist and write in the nonfiction world and, and you're writing for magazines, you know, you cannot make a living writing 
in magazines as a freelance writer. It's, it's actually not possible. Uh, and I was writing for the top magazines. I was getting $3 a word. So I could get $15,000, $20,000 a story. But if you're spending six to eight months on a story, that's, that's not livable unless you're in India, right? Unless you are spending in rupees. And then they also try to take all these rights from your contracts that make it really difficult for you to grow your uh, idea in various ways. So what I argue for in that book and sort of also on these other things is that you have to take your freelance writing business as a as a business. You have to make rational business decisions. When you get contracts, you have to read them and then negotiate really hard, always push back, but also realize that even if you're making top dollar, you know, three bucks a word, you know, maybe you can get five bucks a word in some places. Uh, most writers are making like 50 cents a word or less, but it doesn't matter. The real money comes in growing your ideas and owning your ideas and growing them into things like movies, like books, like speaking gigs, you know, whatever can actually move a brand forward or make the project grow. So I don't even write a magazine pitch unless I can envision that it might become a book or a movie. Like it's not even worth it for me and probably not worth it for many writers to write a story and just think that the story is going to be it. The magazine will pay me fairly and then I'll go off and I'll write another story. And like, wouldn't that be a great world if that's not how it works? You have to be like, here's a story and there's a chance it could become a movie or a book. And so I have some friends, several friends who make their living by writing stories for like GQ or Men's Journal or, or whatever. And then those get optioned by com uh, movie companies in LA because they have the right things, like a, a main character, an arc, a little action sequence maybe. And these get optioned, which means that a, a, a movie company will pay like 30 grand to hold the story idea and maybe develop a movie. But they probably won't develop that movie, right? It, it, making movies is very difficult. But because if Ben Affleck options your movie, he optioned it not just because Ben Affleck wanted to make your movie, but because he didn't want Leonardo DiCaprio to make the movie. <laughs> and so he'll hold it because he's got gobs and gobs of money. And so do all these guys have gobs and gobs of money. And so they'll just hold these ideas for years and years and years at a time. And you'll get $30,000 a year um, to, to do that. And, and that's a real business plan that actually works. People actually do this. So what happens if they do make it into a, into a movie? Do you get anything beyond the option? Well, we should talk to, <laughs> we should talk because I've never, that's never happened to me. I've never All right, gotten we're going to come back when this happens because I feel no, like we, it will. We should bring on some of our old Kenyan um, compatriots, right? Yeah. So we both went to school with uh, John Green and Ransom yes. Riggs. I think Randy lives in, in LA. Yeah, he does. And uh, John's in like John's Indiana in Indianapolis. or something like that. So bring them on and ask them because they've actually had this happen, right? No, when, that's true. When, when Randy's true. book, so Ransom now. When I know, Ransom's he's book, so glamorous. <laughs> uh, when his book came out, um, it was immediately optioned by Tim Burton. Uh, and so he was writing for Mental Floss and Quirk Books, uh, sort of smaller imprints, right? But then Tim, he got the book somehow made it into the hands of Tim Burton. Tim Burton was like, this is great. And on launch day, there was also a piece in, I think, Entertainment Weekly saying that, um, it had been optioned by Tim Burton and it became this huge, mega, great bestseller. That's great. That's fantastic. And so then his whole career sort of went up from there. And it's because his book grew into something, you know, I had spoken to him actually six months earlier, you know, and maybe less than that. Maybe it was like three months before the book came out. And, you know, he was like, hey, I, I wrote this book. It's good. And, and I t he told me the name. The name is Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which is an amazing title. It's such a good title. It's such a good title. But, but he didn't expect that to happen, right? He didn't. He wasn't like, yeah, I'm gonna. You have no I'm idea. I'm gonna take over the world. 
Now, he had no idea. But the option, the, the, the possibility is there. And I think as a writer, you have to write to the, the possibility of something like that happening. And, and this is, what, again, why contracts are important. If, if Quirk Books had taken the movie rights to his book, um, he wouldn't be the mega super rich superstar that he is now. It would have been like Quirk Books presents Miss Peregrine's Home to, to Peculiar Children. And part three, part seven, part 12. Yeah. yeah I mean, totally. Don't let them take your rights is the motto today. So what are you cooking up now? I mean, I know you're going on a big book tour and you're like, leave me alone. I've just finished this book, <laughs> and, yeah. which is doing incredibly well. But do you have something cooking on the back burner or are you just focusing on yeah, getting the book I've, out? I have two ideas that I'm pursuing. Uh, uh, I, I don't, I can't talk about them obviously yeah. yet. Uh, but yeah, so uh, with this book that I just have come out, so I, the previous book, Death on Diamond Mountain, came out, and it there were reasons that I could probably dish about that I thought it was not going to do very well. Okay. Um, Penguin and I were did not get along at that time. They actually closed down my imprint, which was Gotham, like the week before my book came out or the week after, oh. and they fired my editor. They fired my publicist in the summer, so three months before. So I had no press. They also didn't let me ask um, – they didn't let me come up with the title uh, and they didn't let me uh, have any say on the title or cover. And then they fired. So there was like no shot. This book could do well uh, or I mean, there was a shot, but not a great one. So I had this feeling that it wasn't going to do amazing. Uh, so I, I did whatever I could to get press for it. Uh, and one of the things I was able to do was get onto a national public radio. And I knew that was going to come up. So they tell you like a week or two before that you're going to be on. And so I knew it was going to come up on Sunday. It was going to air on Sunday. So I knew that was going to be the very height of its popularity. <laughs> or, and it was gonna, Sunday that is was the, the perfect day. Everybody's at home listening. Right. Uh, so it was, that was going to be the apex of its popularity. So I worked my butt off uh, between uh, you know, the summer and the launch date to have another book proposal ready to go. And on uh, on Monday after weekend edition Sunday, I was in New York uh, and I had arranged all these meetings with other publishers for my next books. And they were like, and so they looked at on Amazon and I think it peaked at like 800 or something like that. And they're like, Oh, this book's doing pretty well. It's a good book. It was never there again. It was <laughs> the book went from 800 to just, just bombed. It wasn't like the abyss after that, but that day it looked really promising and I was oh, able to sell genius. this book. That's yeah. total genius. Well, you know, the other thing too, is that you see, Last week, we were talking to somebody about cover design. And I feel like since this book is taking off, it can carry all of your, you know, carry that mm -hmm. book with it, because it, it's almost like an interesting foil. Like, right. here's this book about a, a path that went really wrong. And here's something that works. So I think it, it really they work nice as a set in a way. Oh, absolutely. And I, I can I think of them as a trilogy. But here's something that's really cool. So that book bombed so badly. <laughs> like really badly that I was able to look at the, the book contract. Here's why contracts are important again. And I, and I was able to say, technically this is out of print. It has sold so few copies that it's out of print. And just today I just got all the rights back to it, which means awesome. now I can re-release the book with the title that I want, with the cover that I want, um, either self-publish or go with the publisher or whatever, but I can give it the shot that it, I think it deserved originally. And it's going to be called the enlightenment trap. I don't know what the, the, the subtitle is going to be, but the enlightenment trap. And, and so that'll come out pretty soon and that'll be great. That's awesome. 
I love these stories because I do hear about this happening, like in some ways, how the instability in the publishing arena can actually serve you in the long run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're just patient and you stick it out. And the other thing I did is with this book, um, I sold only um, U.S. rights. So I was able to sell foreign rights, but I also had the I, I had the audio book. So then I self-recorded the audio book. That'll come out in a week or so. Maybe, maybe it could come out in two or three days. Uh, it's at Audible. So then I also have that, which is, you know, it goes from a royalty rate of like, you know, most publishing contracts are like um, – 10 to 15%. That's usually what you get. Not, not great. Um, uh, but you know, if you self publish through ACX, then, uh, you get 40%, which is a little bullshit cause, but it's a hell of a lot more than like 10. You're like, but so, isn't this my book that I'm publishing myself? Right. And aren't you just putting it on your website? Really? Isn't that what you're doing? But anyway, like breathe out, it's still four times better than what, what I would get anyway. And so, so then I have the, the the backing of a major publisher for the hardcover and the audiobook's mine. And that's really cool. Like that's a that's a great thing that writers can do if you're good at your negotiations up front. So how was it recording the audiobook? Um I was in my closet right there behind me. <laughs> and I had a, a an audio engineer. He in was the a friend closet? Of mine. No, no, he was he was at my desk. Oh, okay, got it. And, and he set up a, you know, we put blankets everywhere and, and he's actually a really good audio engineer, um, but is a friend. And, and so, so, you know, he recorded it on a budget that I could afford and I, you know, it took about a week to record and yeah, I think it actually turned out really, really well. That's awesome. And then it's up on audible next week. Hopefully. Yeah. That, uh, right after we finish here, I'm going to go give audible a call and be like, All right, you said it would be live yesterday, but you know, can we get it up? tomorrow well i think it'll be up by the time this show airs so we'll put a link to it so that everybody knows sweet <laughs> how they can listen to your dulcet tones um if they prefer i love audiobooks actually for that because it's the only way i can knit and read at the same time i'm that kind oh, of all right yeah you, you totally you're a dork <laughs> totally plus i live in la so <laughs> the traffic I, I i keep telling myself i'm not stuck in traffic i'm just getting a lot of reading done Oh yeah. Nice. I it's, like it. It's my, it's my little mental shift a la Wim Hof kind of traffic transformation. <laughs> and, and the other nice thing about it is that uh, why not listen to an audiobook so you don't have to listen to the news, right? So you oh, don't have to know what's God. going on don't even in this country started. right now. <laughs> so if somebody reads this book, say like, say me and has something like say celiac that they're dealing with and says, okay, do, do we just start like taking cold showers? I mean, I'm probably not going to be able to go to Poland and mm -mm. jump into the snow yeah. with this guy. So what are some practical takeaways that you could see somebody who's inspired by the book trying at this stage? Aside from your giant disclaimer at the beginning, that's like, do not do this, except. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's up with medical do not do this at all. Uh, yeah. The, the, what you want to do, and here's the underlying theory is that, is that autoimmune diseases are partially a response to the fact that we have a static environment. So we always had natural variations uh, throughout time. Even if you were in the on the equator where we you know where we started, between day and night there were these huge fluctuations in in temperature, and and our bodies were designed to deal with those fluctuations. But now we live at 72 degrees no matter when we are, and we don't have things to do. So the theory behind this is that 
your immune system is basically bored. Like it was designed to go fight the environment and you're not giving it anything to chew on. So it's going to go attack itself. I'm sure that's way too simplified, but that's, that's the, the, the underlying um, ideas. So basically what we're doing is giving our body something to do uh, through environmental stimuli. And you can start by taking cold showers, like literally just sit, go to your, your shower, turn it from hot to all the way cold. And you're in LA, so you might need ice too. I know, because I tried in the summer to do this when it was so, and I'm just like, this is like lukewarm. This is not yeah. cold. Uh, you know, hang out in the Pacific, right? Right now you're in LA, go, go down to Venice and just jump in there and swim for five minutes, which definitely will not kill you, right? You will not get hypothermia. You will not get frostbite. Nothing like that will happen, but your body is going to be like, Oh my God, really? Why are you doing this to me? And that's good. And, and then what you do is you suppress your shiver response. So one of the first things your body does is say, oh, I'm cold. So I'm going to use the energy of my muscles to heat my body. You suppress that response, which which you just do mentally, right? It's like, it's like the same thing as de delaying a sneeze. Go there and then come out and you're going to feel pretty warm. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to get out of that really cold place and you're, you're going to come out and your body's like superheated because it's, it's ramped up your metabolism. And that's a great first step. And you, if I was living in Long Beach right now, like I was before, I would be in that water every morning uh, without a wetsuit just to, just to feel that. Uh, that's one thing that you can do. Uh, the other thing is there's this breathing method and I'm not going to go into it here, but why don't you just Google Wim Hof breathing and, and there's going to be a bajillion videos out there and, and you know, you're good to go, but it's basically hyperventilation and then breath retention, hyperventilation and breath retention. And that's what you're trying to do there is give yourself, um, the stimulus of wanting to gasp and then delaying that and finding that you can delay that more than, you thought you could initially. Nice. I, I have that reaction a little bit in terms of I've done some breathing techniques and I think I get a little bit of it. And the other thing that I can compare it to in terms of the cold stuff is like the Korean spa cold plunge. Oh, yeah. And it always makes me laugh because I love it, actually. And mm -hmm. there are other people that will like put one toe in and be like, oh, no, oh, no. Mm -hmm. And they can't mm -hmm. do it. But I'm like, it feels amazing. You just got to just get in all at once. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no yeah. ice in it or anything, but it is, it is definitely cold in there. I, I love that Korean spa stuff. I mean, I, uh, there's one near my house and I've never gone, but I really want to. Usually I roll in the snow in my backyard and then go from hot tub to snow. That's really fun. Uh, but yeah, the thing is that most people have this like instinctual terror about the cold and they're like, there's nothing worse than getting in the cold that I, some people might be able to do it. Obviously you can Scott, but me, no, I'm genetically different than you. And that's just not true. Like we're, you're not, you're the, you're the same. You're just scared. And it's getting over, you know, one of the biggest things, and this is why it's even short stints in the shower are actually useful. It's just getting over that initial fear response is huge. Uh, and, and finding out that with the, the water cascading over you that you can suppress, suppress shivering and that you can relax in that environment is giving your system something to do. It's showing it your system that, Hey, let's not panic. Let's not trigger the fight or flight response yet. Cause we don't need to. I think the fear thing is huge because um, I don't know if you've read a book by Tara Moore called Playing Big, I think is the title. I'm, of course, going to screw it up. But her name's Tara Moore. And she has this interesting deconstruction of the concept of fear, which mm -hmm. is that there are two kinds of fear, at least according to, I think, the spiritual tradition that, that she knows, which is 
Oh God, I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, that the one kind is actual fight or flight fear. And it's, Mm -hmm. oh my God, something bad's going to happen to me. A dinosaur is coming or whatever, a leopard. And the other one is the same physiological response. It feels exactly the same to you, but it's actually a call to take up more space and that you're doing something more with your life. So it's like stage fright feels like a tiger's going to get you, but it's really like, oh, I'm just stepping into something bigger right now and learning how to pull those two apart and being able to do that on a physical level. I can see getting into this cold and being like, no, I'm just trying something different and I'm giving myself Mm. a wider range of physical experiences. Mm-hmm. There's no totally. tiger in the, in the cold plunge at the Korean spa. <laughs> there better not be right. <laughs> I, I hope not. I wouldn't go back to that Korean spa. If there was. No, t- no tiger Korean spas, you know, maybe there's a spa though where you can have a tiger and then you can get scared of the tiger, but the tiger's actually really nice. It's a friendly tiger. And maybe that could be a way to train yourself too. I don't this know. This might be a side business. You might want to yeah. try this. Like you could probably get away with that in Colorado, you know, cause you've mm-hmm. got the cold weather, be like, mm-hmm. hey, we got some wild animal, wild animal Korean spa. Yeah, a fr- I like the, the friendly tiger spa. I think that's good. And then it they, they sounds like something you'd see a- in in Cambodia. I have uh-huh. a friend who's coming back from her honeymoon today, and she's been sending me all these amazing pictures of the signs. Nice. And there are some tigers, so I'll ask her mm-hmm. if she saw a friendly tiger <laughs> Korean spa. <laughs> I, I dig it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm super excited for this. I hope everybody checks out your book. And at the very least, I think it's important because as I'm seeing this kind of skeptic versus spiritual, and and as we briefly alluded to the divide in this country, that we Mm -hmm. all seem to like entrench ourselves in a belief and say, this is who I am. I don't believe in that kind of stuff, or Mm -hmm. I'm all science, or I'm all spiritual and nobody's going to talk to me and nobody's going to change my mind. I think examples where people have actually been open and willing to have their minds changed by actual for real experience and then Mm -hmm. going to look at the science to back it up. It's like not being brainwashed, but just really participating in the experience is really inspiring to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can end up doing great things. I hiked up Mount Kilimanjaro and just a pair of shorts by the end of the book, right? I'm, I'm getting up to the top of this mountain by just because I gave it a chance. Cause I, and I do, did something that I think many people have the ability to do, but just no one would have the inclination or even the idea to do it. Uh, is that, you know, just pushing your body and, and, and allowing the, the chance to happen. Yeah. And I love the bit about the guide who is a local and does this all the time, who said, he said, like, mm-hmm. please just put on a shirt. Yeah, right. You <laughs> <laughs> like can uh, barely take it. But it's like, okay, well, here, this is happening. But it's like breaking apart your expectations of what's possible. Exactly. exactly. And for some people, that's just writing a book. Um, <laughs> you can do yeah. that, too. So maybe jump in some cold water, and then it won't seem so scary to write your book. That's right. I mean, you know, actually, and books aren't, if you're intimidated by writing a book, um, you're probably looking at writing a book wrong. I, I, the, I, I have a very easy system that I've developed to write a book, which is like, I, you buy Scrivener, which probably the, oh everyone on the podcast has. Everybody right? is like, Scrivener, I know. Scrivener, you should sponsor this show. So yeah, l- let's go talk to Literature and Latte and see what they say. So, great. Uh, so you, you take Scrivener, right? You put it on your desktop and then you say, I am going to write 500 words a day. I have a good outline already. I write 500 words a day. And if I write more than that, great. If I only write that, great. And I just do this, sorry, during the week. So it's five days a week. Um, you have a book in eight months 
if, if you stick to your outline, you know, a book is like 80,000 words, eight months you have a book because that's 10,000 words a, a month that you get to write in. And then there's your first draft. It might be a terrible first draft. It might be a horrendously, horrendously bad thing, but you don't go backwards. You don't go re-edit your old stuff. You just plow through from a good skeleton and then the book's there. And I've done that for the last two books and uh, it's made worrying, you know, because a lot of times writers get into this thing, they're like, they have the whole book in their head, they just have to go make it all appear. Uh, and that is really, really, really difficult to do. It's much easier to give yourself a little schedule. And I'll write 500 words, which might take me 10 minutes, right? And it might take me 10 hours. Doesn't matter 500 words, and then I'm free. And so I have gotten more towards the 10 minute side of things, because I can sort of muse about what my next 500 words might be uh, during the day. But I can go have time to go take cold showers, take hikes in the mountain, whatever. And I'm still on track to have a book at eight months. Amazing. So once you have the, the draft, how much do you have to do to that draft, even if it's terrible? So you go back, do you rewrite? Like, what do you do? Here's the, the thing is if you keep to your structure and you just write through the book, both the last two books that I've written, I've gone back and I haven't had to do that much. That was the amazing thing. It's like, I'm gonna write a terrible, terrible book. I don't care if it's terrible, I'm just gonna do it, right? And I went back and the editing was really not nearly as bad as I'd expected. Um, I, you know, there was stuff to do. I definitely, you know, but I, but I could edit a chapter in a week uh, and have it good at the end of that week, enough to, enough to send to the editor. And then there's like the, the bajillion rights that happen after you're in the conversation with the editor. But so eight months, my book is like 12 chapters. That's another two months of editing, uh, where I, where my goal was like one chapter a week. So the chapter is like 5,000 words. And, uh, and so then the book is done in 10 months. Like if you have a finished book in 10 months, and then it's at your editor and then whatever they do, and they're usually don't read it. It sits on their desk for like six months or whatever, but you know, that's what happens. And, uh, but you got six months to do whatever you want, right? Cause you delivered and maybe you even got the second part of your advance back. So then you have some more money to survive on. Awesome. I love it. Okay, everybody. It's that simple. 500 words a day <laughs> gets Grivner. Go for it. <laughs> Get an outline. Get an outline. Yeah. Outline yeah. is good. So you're not just wandering around in a circle. And then mm -hmm. you can break apart that fear response um, of, oh, my God, is this book ever going to happen? Because mm -hmm. you heard it right here. It's going to happen after book number three. <laughs> and potentially book number four and five, it sounds like, are cooking away on the back burner. They're there. They're, they're in the head right now. Nice. We'll see if it – but I have a new book idea every week, and then I don't usually don't do them. So, you know, something is going to cook eventually. Right, exactly. But having having ideas is good, and then you get to choose from them later. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to we'll have to talk to you when those come out. But um, thank you so much for coming on, Scott. It was great to talk about this, and I'm so thrilled that your book is doing so well. And I think it's just going to keep going. Absolutely. And next time you should get Randy and uh, John Green. So you know, well, we'll 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 start working on that today. <laughs> All right, sounds good. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, and really good to catch up with you. Thanks again, and remember to visit our sponsor, Pretty by Post, to check out their gorgeous indie card, greeting cards, or stationary subscriptions. Remember, you can visit prettybypost.com slash bookdoctor, that's book D-R, to learn how you can get free shipping on the lifetime of your subscription. Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. 
To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.